Tonight will be a special meeting. When I was walking up from downstairs to this room, uh, a verse came to me, and I believe it is from the Lord. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. Here, the Apostle Paul spoke a very intimate, honest, um, word to the Corinthians. He said this, For I am jealous over you with the jealousy of God. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Tonight, with this word that the Lord has anointed in my spirit, I like to be bold, and I pray that the Lord will cover me if I seem to be audacious. Tonight, I stand here on behalf of the Lord. So, what I'm speaking to you I have a fair measure of confidence it is the Lord speaking in me and through me to all of you. Tonight, I want to tell you that the one who is speaking here is jealous. He is the jealous God as Paul would put it. However, Paul was not quite the first person to say this. Actually, he was, just like what I'm doing tonight, speaking on behalf of God himself, who way back in the Old Testament made it plain and clear that one of his attributes, unthinkable attributes, unbelievable attributes, at least in the mind of most people when they think about God, and that is God is jealous. God can get exceedingly jealous. God is a jealous God. Here, Paul continued to say, because I betroth you, somewhat like a matchmaker, if you will, I betroth you to one husband. Who is that one husband? Clearly, it is God himself, who time and again told, reminded 
his people Israel, that he was their true husband, and they were their his wife. Here, as the New Testament believers, we were betrothed to our one husband, God, and Paul went on further to say that his ministry of betrothal, in that ministry, he presented, just like in the old days, in a marriage or in an engagement of certain marriages, there would be a proper presentation of a bride, of a young lady, to a man. That young lady was properly presented. And here it says, Paul presented the Corinthians, a pure virgin to Christ. Now tonight, I'm here to do the same thing. Tonight, I'm exceedingly burdened after this wonderful week to present you a pure virgin to Christ. Virgins to one husband. And I do this filled with the jealousy of God. This week, I have not been here for certain personal reasons, but I've been keeping up with what's going on by your Instagrams and Twitter, whatever, doing my best to master that technology, as well as receiving reports from various brothers sitting all over there. And as I follow the reports, I cannot help but conclude within my spirit that the Lord is doing something quite special. That the Holy Spirit's work is evident to me. I'd like to tell you tonight that that is not accidental, nor is it incidental. That is... That visitation of the Lord in this last one week to all of you in this training was determined by God in his good time to do it at this place. I want none of you to think that this is a simple happenstance in Champaign, Illinois. I want to tell you tonight, and I believe the brothers have also said something similarly, 
in their own ways, that this is a unique situation and time. I told the brothers this afternoon, did a little simple calculation in my head, that according to how society would classify generations after generations, that you sitting here would actually represent the beginning of yet a new generation. That means, listen, that you are not, I say you, I speak generally, who are in the age group of, say, 17 to 22 or 23. You're in college. You're in university. But as such, you represent a new generation that I would call post-millennial. You are not millennials, technical, technically speaking. Who are the millennials? The millennials are those who were born around 1980, 81, perhaps 82. You were not born then. That's the age that my two daughters were born and my two sons-in-laws were born. You were born in the 90s, the mid-90s. Some a little later, some a little earlier. That means you did not come of age. They call them millennials because they came of age around the year 2000. But you didn't. You came of age about 15 years later than that. And here you are. You are a new generation. And to me, when I think about that, that puts a chill down my spine, as they say. I felt woken up by the Lord. I felt someone just splash cold water on my face. I felt I need to wake up. A new generation indeed has arrived. And here you are. What will this generation be? According to what we see and observe in the world today, in secular society, this generation or this succeeding generation, one after another, me, the so-called baby boomer, generation W, those born around the mid-60s would be generation X, the Xers. And those born in 1980 or so, the millennials, the generation Y. And now, what's after Y? What's after Y? According to the alphabet. Well, I have not heard people formally assign that alphabet Z yet to a generation. 
But to be logical, that would be generation Z. And you are that generation. As I think about this, I'm brought back to when I was your age. Some years ago. But I will tell you, I wouldn't mind exposing myself and my age. You can only hide it for that so long. That it was in the mid to late 60s. The number of the brothers who sit over here belong to that same group. Those were the years, again back to my own personal testimony, when the Lord did something merciful and gracious and sovereign to pick me out along with others from the trash bin of the world. That today, even standing here, I have no way of explaining. The only thing one can do is worship and give thanks that for some reason he chose, he called according to his foreknowledge some of us out of this generation. Not many by a long shot. A small number. A small number. I'm here even just remembering the prophet Elijah when he was pursued by that evil king and just went to Mount Horeb. That's where he escaped to, to run away. And he hid himself in a cave and say, just kill me. Just, I have enough of this. Cannot live like the, a fugitive like this. That evil king, by the way, whose wife is Jezebel, was pursuing him. Jehovah spoke to him in a way of comfort that there are 7,000 in the land of Israel who has not bowed their knees to Baal, nor have they kissed him. 7,000 out of many millions by then. A very, very small number. That 7,000 was what Jehovah needed as his overcomers of that age to keep the testimony of Israel alive. My young brothers and sisters, it is not the absolute number that matters. It's who are in this number. It's who they are. 
It's what constitutes them. Well, you are here. And so another verse sprang up in me. Psalms 24.6 This is the generation that seek your face. This is the generation that seek your face. Wherever the psalmist was, the consideration, the feeling, was that he was not alone. He was part of a generation, and he represented that generation. When he uttered that prayer, or when he made that proclamation. I hope that many of you will pray that prayer on behalf of yourself and on behalf of those next to you and indeed on behalf of your whole generation. Now tonight, what is my burden? The outline says I should be speaking on Paul. And I will. Maybe a little bit. And if I don't get to Paul, sorry Paul, I'll get to him tomorrow. But you don't worry. It is important that we talk about Paul. As the line of men throughout the ages in the Bible. Who are age-turners. People who change and age. People who actually turn and age. We started with Moses. Did we not know Noah? And then we went to Moses. We saw their life. We saw their work. We saw the preparation work that God had done graciously to prepare these two vessels to change their age. One from the age pre-flood to an age post-flood. With a lot of meaning, dispensational significance. It is actually a picture of our age today. Simply because the Lord said so. As in the days of Noah so shall the days of the Son of Man be, referring to the time of his coming back. And that is his soon return. We are in the days of Noah. I don't have time to get into that. I'm sure the brothers have spoken much to you. Noah turned that age in tight. And he turned his age in actuality. 
Moses, who turned the age from the age before the law to the age of the law. A great change in God's dispensation. And what a vessel, what a servant he was, Moses. Too much to consider. We went on to two great age turners. One is Samuel. The other is Daniel. Samuel turned the age from the age of the judges to the age of the kings. He was a Nazarite a volunteer, someone who didn't have that position by birth, but through his mom's vow, through his faithfulness, he became such a priest to turn the age to the age of the kings. Daniel Turn yet another important age, that is from the age of captivity to the age of the return of the children of Israel to the good land, leading up to, eventually, the Lord Jesus' first coming. By the rebuilding of the temple and the city. And too much about these two men. Again, that's not my job tonight. I believe the brothers have shared a lot. But I want you to recall. I want you to think about these clouds of witnesses. Then we come to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have who? John the Baptist. We have Peter, the apostle. John the Baptist turned the age from what? The age of the law. As a forerunner of Christ. To the age, opening the way. To the age of grace. That is the age of Christ. Really speaking, we miss, quite deliberately, the real, ultimate age-turner, and that is Jesus. We didn't cover Jesus because he was the God-man. Here we are here using just the pattern and the examples of some real men just like you and I. But the real overcomer is Christ. So, John opened the way for that. Then we have Peter, who who was given the keys of the kingdom. And he was the one who opened the door of the kingdom on the day of Pentecost and beyond. 
primarily with the Jews, God's Old Testament people. And that is a great thing. He turned an age. Now, how about Paul? Paul, I would say, is almost the archetype. Is that how you pronounce it? A-R-C-H-E-T-Y-P-E. Archetype, maybe. The archetype. That means he is the best of the examples. The perfect prototype of the age turner other than the Lord himself. He's in the New Testament. He completed the word of God. He opened up the revelation of Christ and the church like none other. And he proclaimed God's eternal economy. No one has done that except him. And although he did not change an age as some of these others did, But in a very good sense, he did. He was the one who was sent to the Gentiles, bringing this gospel, this full gospel of God, to the Gentile world that includes so many of us today. Well, tonight... I scarcely know how much I should say and talk about this Paul. And by the way, there are other overcomers that we didn't mention. Came to my mind even now. How about Joshua? How about Caleb? Weren't they a pair of overcomers? No one else among the Israelites entered into the good land who came out of Egypt except these two, alive. I didn't mention Timothy. You would not think Timothy was an H-turner. I will tell you he was. Based on Paul's charge to him. Today, brothers and sisters, we are closer to the consummation of the ages than ever before. And you are that generation living in this age. The consummation of the age means the end of this present age. And there will be yet another age after this. And that is the age of the kingdom. Where Christ will come physically to 
to restore the earth, to install his throne in Jerusalem and in the air, to turn the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of himself. And here he will rule and he will reign for 1,000 years. That is the age that the Old Testament saints are looking for. That is also the age that the New Testament saints, the faithful ones, are looking for, looking towards to. Paul calls these ones those who love his appearing. They all look forward. They all looked away to a reward. To a certain reward by faith. That's what our forefathers, since Abraham, the patriarchs, the godly ones in the Old Testament, the church believers in the age of grace have been looking forward to. It is because they believe that there is a coming age that they're willing to live a different kind of life. A life that is against the tide of the age. A life absolute to God. A life one with Christ. A life given to God's eternal purpose. They live that life by paying a price. A heavy price in many instances. But they did it. They forsook the world. They denounce its pleasures and enjoyment. They chose the way of suffering with God's people. In Old Testament terms, they took the way of the cross. They fought. They ran. They endure. Because they look to that new age. Young saints, you are living at the prime of your age closer to that new age.
than any of us. And tonight, my burden, speaking on behalf of my jealous God, is to claim you for himself. This last week, I was not here, but I was praying very much, daily. I was praying. I was praying for you, although I don't know you. And as I pray, even until this afternoon, the Lord said something to me. He said, that's good enough. That's good enough. Your prayer, my prayer, is good enough. I heard it. And now I'd like to tell you, it's not just me praying. This whole week, I believe thousands of saints in the local churches were praying. I believe many of your fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles have been praying. I believe many of those who serve you, who took care of you, are still taking care of you, they're praying. And tonight, I have the faith to say this, that those prayers have been heard. And those prayers are being answered. This week, next week, the coming weeks, the coming months, the coming years, the coming decades. I know it, and I believe it. The Lord said, that's good enough. He said to me, he said, these young people are mine. He said, don't worry. Somewhat comforting. He said, they are mine. You don't need to be that anxious. I believe that word. So tonight when I came, in a sense, I was not filled with, you know, 
heavy inspiration or kind of stirred up, you know, in that kind of a way. Just because I believe that you, every one of you sitting in this hall, you are his. And my jealous God said so. And no one is more jealous than he. My jealousy will run out. My burden for you will expire. My prayer for you may weaken one day. But this jealous God, he will not let you go. I guarantee you that. Because that's my experience. I'd like to tell you my story tonight. At the risk of some repetition to some of you. But today when I came in the morning to take a peek, it seemed like none of you recognized me, which was a marvelous feeling. What good is it to always run into your buddies about your age? I want to tell you, college students, that according to my experience, the God, God, this jealous God, calling me and claiming me and wooing me and subduing me and captivating me and possessing me was not over a brief period of time. In fact, as I'm recollecting here, it took place over several years. And I can identify those years for you. It started in my high school senior year in a meeting like this with less people there in the Far East. I was enjoying the world. I was with my friends. You know, we went out and do this, you know. And things high schoolers would do everywhere. I wasn't that bad, but certainly by then I didn't have that much of a heart for the Lord. Then the Lord came in a meeting like this. One meeting. One meeting. Remember to this day what that message was. Spoken by an old brother from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
on the treasure hidden in earthen vessels. I never realized in my life that I was an earthen vessel made to contain a treasure exclusively. That that was the purpose of my life. It ignited something in me that was the beginning of the move of God. I went back and did my things. I wasn't jumping up and down fully consecrated until sometime in the next year. What happened, what I told you, it was in my junior year. In my senior year, halfway through, I can tell you, it is in the month of March, the year 1967. And if you give me the time, I can find out the exact hour. This time, the jealous God didn't just touch me with a message. This time, the jealous God came as the Spirit himself to visit me personally. Now, I will tell you, when God visits a person, usually he knows it. And I knew that was the Lord. It was in an evening or afternoon. When God is present, time stands still. Because where God is, eternity is. I didn't know how long it was. It was wave after wave of grace, of love, of the Spirit. Pouring. I was a Christian already. Pouring. Pouring. I say pouring into my heart. By this Holy Spirit that has been given. The result is this jealous love gave me or rendered me no choice. When you still have a choice, perhaps the Lord has not appeared to you adequately, fully. I don't mean subsequent to that, I have no struggle. That's not the truth. We're all human. We're all fallen. But I cannot deny the Lord's flow of mighty love that constrained me, pressured me to the uttermost 
At that juncture, I hand myself over in full surrender to the Lord. And I did not do it just because I was delirious, I was excited. I did it because I could not resist his jealousy over me. What was he doing? He was merely coming to claim me. To claim what was rightfully his when he said, it's time. It's time. No more delay. No tomorrow. I want you now. This moment. I respond like all of us would in that situation with a consecration, a strong one. I gave my life to him. I gave my future to him. I gave my education to him. I gave my marriage to him. Seventeen years old. No, in fact, I was sixteen. In March. I even gave myself with a vow that I will serve him the rest of my life. I surely did not know what all that meant. They unfolded in the subsequent years until now, even tonight. From then, from there, I should say, I came to this country. And just to make story story briefer, the Lord led me to the church life here, the Lord's recovery, through this marvelous ministry. And I saw something more. I saw Christ the all-inclusive one that I've never seen before. I saw his church, the desire of his heart, God's eternal purpose. I saw his recovery, what he wanted to do in this age to restore his own testimony. I saw for the first time that there is the next age of the kingdom. Those years, I would like to tell you, were exactly my college years. This is why I'm telling you the story. My four to five years, I got a little bit delayed because of switching schools from Oregon to Los Angeles. Lost some time. But those four to five years, until I got my bachelor degree, were four to five years of God claiming me, 
possessing to the fullest extent. Here, again at the risk of repetition for some of you, I'd like to tell you this little vignette of a story of my visitation with a brother, Eugene Gruler Sr. Eugene Gruler Sr. was an old brother in Los Angeles, instrumental to the start of the church life there in the early 60s. He had this heavy German accent, not a speaker at all. In big meetings, you will hardly know he existed. But he was one that at least one time, Brother Lee said, let me tell you who is my real co-worker. It is he. He did not mention any of the younger brothers who may travel with him or co-labor with him, he mentioned his old brother. He said, why? Because whenever I travel, and Brother Lee did that half of in the year, half of the year was travel, the other half, you remain in L.A. to build up that model. He what? He would pray. Brother Lee said, I know. He prayed for me in my trials. This is my co-worker. This is the brother. And he loved the young people. And I had the privilege to be invited by him one Lord's Day, which is the typical time he does it. He did it, inviting some young people to his house, fed them a good meal, and fellowship with them. And so... I was one of those one time. And this would be a fall afternoon, one Lord's Day, there in his apartment on Westmoreland Avenue in the Eldon Hall area. After the meal, one after another, the other brothers left. With me just staying there. I don't remember why. Then he says, sit down. So he was there. He was here. He was here. I was there in his sofa chair. And I don't remember all the things he talked to me. I just remember in my mind's eye that afternoon, fall sun was streaming through those lacy curtains. And here he was, and at some point, he looked at me. He had his bushy, bushy eyebrows and his big nose and this gaze of his eyes. He was just looking right at me. And he began to tell me the story of one D.L. Moody. 
those from Chicago should know this man, the great, one of the greatest evangelists that this country has ever produced. Before this man gave his life to the Lord to serve with all his being and time, he was a shoe salesman. And then he went, he was Christian. Then he went to England. In those days, a lot of traffic, even among Christians. He's in the 1800s. He was invited to the Keswick Convention over there. And there are many accounts of this story. I don't claim to know the most accurate account. That is not the point. The point is somewhere during that visit, some saint, some brother, and Keswick Convention is well known for their consecration, told him one day, the Moody or whatever, Mr. Moody, Brother Moody, God today is still waiting for one man who is absolutely consecrated to him. That's all. And that day, Brother Gruler sat at the edge of his chair, looked me in the eye, and repeated that sentence. Brother Minoru, God today is still waiting for one man. One man. I sat there. It was one of those moments where I knew the Lord was speaking. And that little visit did in me what many messages probably would not have done. That strengthened me, that challenged me, that inspired me to be that man. I don't know whether I'm that man, even tonight. But I will tell you, I will always aspire to be that one man. I give you this story to tell you to have this same aspiration. Not many men. One Paul. One Peter, one Daniel, Samuel, one Moses, one Noah. Of course, there is the corporate aspect of consecration. But tonight, I'd like to tell you, God is claiming you to be his.
My years in college became years like that. Four to five years of constant consecration. Constant visits by the Lord. The cutting off of certain relationships. The giving up of my family. My earthly family. The willingness to forsake what I want to do with my education. The readiness to just be nothing except to serve Him. The desire to take the way of the Lord's recovery against all kinds of persecution and underminings and attack. Was I successful? Probably not completely so. But I'm here, along with many brothers, as a living testimony to you. That in the end, the jealous God will have his way. Now I know time is short, and I know... Paul has to wait till tomorrow. But tonight, I'd like to jump to one point that is in tomorrow's message. You don't need to open it up, your, your outlines. That is Psalm 110. Psalm 110, we always like to read Verse 3 and 7, and therefore I will read it to you again tonight. Your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your warfare, in the splendor of their consecration. Your young men will be to you like the dew from the womb of the dawn. Verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This song, I must tell you, in context, is about Christ, the resurrected and ascended Christ. You know, some portrays Christ in many aspects. Some, the suffering Christ. Some, the crucified Christ. Some, the returning Christ. But this song, is about the resurrected and ascended Christ. Why? Because it says, right off the bat in verse 1, Jehovah declares to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Referred to many times in the New Testament when it speaks about Christ's enthronement in the heavens. Therefore, his ascension. So, this is the context. And that's where we are today. 2,000 years later, this Christ is still there on the throne. 
What is he doing there? Young brothers and sisters, what do you think he is doing there? He is administrating the universe. He's ruling on God's behalf this world. He is definitely there interceding on our behalf. He's there actually shepherding all of us and building his church. Unlike what most Christians think after he ascended, he is just kind of crossing his legs on some sofa up there, you know, waiting for the buzzer and then he will come back. No. I tell you, the ascended Christ has been busy. Even more so than when he was on the earth. But in this song, the picture is that he as the priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as the Lord as at Jehovah's right hand. Today, listen to me, he is still fighting. He is still warring. His job is not done. His purpose is not fulfilled. His intention has not yet been realized. There's still an enemy at large. There's still resistance. The earth is still in rebellion. He's fighting. His church has been degraded. His believers has become cold. The Christians are by and large defeated. His testimony is desolate. And his church is not built. And that bride he's looking for is not prepared. He is still fighting to bring in his kingdom. It is against this background that you have this psalm. And the psalmist say, your people. I like to tell the Lord now, Lord, these are your people. You know, these few days when the Lord came to me and said, these young people are mine. I just have to keep telling the Lord, back to the Lord, speaking back to the Lord. These are your people. They are not mine. They're not the co-workers. They're not the elders. They don't belong to me. Lord, each and every one of them belongs solely to you. And you alone. They are your people. Friends, sisters, You are his. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. 
will offer themselves willingly. What does his people do? His people offer themselves willingly. And I like this. This refers to a willing volunteer offering. This is not the kind of offering like the regular offerings in Leviticus, in Exodus, in, in the Old Testament that are God-ordained. The burn offering, the peace offering, the meal offering, the sin offering, and so on and so forth, those are God-ordained offerings. Those are God-standard requirements for our worship to Him. These offerings... Willing offerings are free will. They are always listed with vows. Vows and free will offerings are always paired together. These are not required. These are not ordained. These are offerings initiated not by him, but by us. Not by God, but by men. And yet, they will be accepted by God. Because they are done in a volunteer base, on a volunteer basis. Like a vow. Like a vow. Brothers and sisters, a vow. What is a vow? A vow is more than a promise. A vow is an unretractable promise, an unrescindable promise. That's a vow, like the Nazarite vow. You make this vow and you keep this vow, like marriage, no divorce. That's it. Thick or thin, good or bad, no change. And done in a willing way, that means not by coercion, not by demand. It's up to you. In the book of Judges, chapter 5, with that famous song, of Deborah, you have two places that says that the people have willingly offered themselves, bless Jehovah. The people have offered themselves willingly, bless Jehovah. This is the same chapter where we have these two famous observations. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolution in heart. In the divisions of Reuben, there are great searchings of heart. He was in the context of a war, of Israel's fighting. 
with its enemies. That time, there were these Israelites who have resolutions, searchings, to stand on God's side, to defeat God's enemies, to establish His kingdom. And it was in this context that Deborah and the singers of this song would bless Jehovah, would praise Jehovah, that there are indeed people among Israel, even leaders, it says, leaders who take the lead in Israel, they willingly offer themselves. In the days of your warfare, whose warfare? The warfare of Christ today. He's our David, still fighting. Really speaking, brothers and sisters, we are not the fighters. He is the fighter. In the splendor of their consecration, their willing offering, their vows, their consecration, In the splendor of it. That word splendor. Means something. Beautiful. Something. Noble. I will tell you brothers and sisters. The most splendid people are those people who have given everything to him. There is a beauty that is undescribable. That adorns a human being. Their consecration. Which really, in the end, is also Christ himself. I like all of you to be beautiful. Not by your looks, not by your smarts. All those things are temporal. One thing is beautiful to the Lord always is your consecration. Your young men will be to you. Young men, your young men. Now it's getting specific. Not your people, but your young men. The Lord today needs young men. When I say young men, I don't mean 30-something. I don't even mean just 20-something. I mean those in their teens. Those who are starting college. Those who are at the end of their high school years. It is not too young. All these ones that we spoke about this week offer themselves, became such age-turners when they were young. That young. 
like the dew from the womb of the dawn. What's the picture here? The picture is this fighting Christ needs to be watered, needs to be supplied, needs to be quenched. But he's looking for just something. Listen to me. What? Not a torrent, not a river, not buckets. He's looking for some dew. Small, gentle, vulnerable, soft, mild, but sweet, but cool. Christ today wants to do. To lick this do. To drink from this do. And this do comes only in the morning. Comes only at dawn. And here it says, the womb of the dawn. That means what? That means a place where this dew is conceived. Is conceived. At this point, I like to say that after this week, this dawn is quite pregnant right now. I believe so. I believe that many of you, if not all of you, have been conceived this week, meeting by meeting, and speaking by speaking, to be formed as such do. What am I doing here? I'm not here to engineer anything, to manufacture anything. I'm here number one, to be that matchmaker, you know, that betrother. Remember that? And number two, I'm here to be a little bit of a midwife. To help with the delivery of some dew. Amen? Now, it's already nine. And I will stop my sharing right here. But the meeting is not ending. The meeting is beginning. Tonight, on behalf of the jealous God, I want you 
to consecrate yourself. To the Lord. And I hope that consecration is specific and even practical. Let me just say this, that whether we have some feeling or we don't have some feeling, that is not that important. The important thing is the Lord has already been working in you this whole week. Tonight, the Lord wants his harvest. Tonight, the Lord wants to reap the fruit of his labor. Tonight, the Spirit wants to claim the issue of his gracious work in you this week. So on our side, knowing this, and having this, we just need, as Paul would say, intelligently, reasonably, offer ourselves to the Lord in the way of a free will offering. I want you to consider giving your remaining years in college specifically to him the next one to four years. Give those years specifically. I want you to consider making a vow to the Lord about going to the full-time training. I mean that. And I say this with no reservation. You say, the full-time training don't have room for us so many. That's not for you to worry that's for God to worry about. Our job is to volunteer. Is not who is able, but who is available. It's not ability, it's availability. That's the principle of consecration. I want you, thirdly, to offer the rest of your life to the Lord until he comes back. And that means decades, maybe, if the Lord tarries, or sooner. But the rest of your life, to do what, you say? I will say this, to serve him. in his purpose, and in his recovery. And perhaps, like me, some of you will have the burden to offer yourself to serve the Lord with all of your time, 
with all of your energy, with all of your being, for the rest of your life. What does that famous footnote say about Mary breaking that alabaster box on the Lord that the disciples consider a waste? Truly, it is a waste in human eyes. All the, what? Precious lives, I forgot. All the heart's treasure, all the what? I wrote it down. All the golden futures have been wasted by a line of people throughout the ages on the Lord. And to those who have done so, the Lord is lovely and worthy of their offering. What they poured upon them not a waste, but a fragrant testimony of the Lord's sweetness. We cannot offer ourselves or pour out ourselves upon the Lord too much. So I ask you three things specifically, not just a kind of a consecration in a general way. I want you to offer one more time the rest of your college years to live in the church life, to live unto the Lord, to carry out his commission, to be today's overcomers now, to go to the full-time training. My two daughters went to it. My two sons-in-laws went to it. I cannot begin to tell you the benefit they reap and are still reaping. The thought of them not having been to the training would make, wake me up in cold sweat at night. And I'm not exaggerating a bit. Don't just listen to some who would say something negative disappointingly about the full-time training. I tell you, the full-time training is a must. You need to go there. If you mean business to be an age turner, it takes time for preparation and constitution and growth to be today's age turners. You must go. I ask you, I plead with you, I charge you. I hope FTTA would have these things called early application, where you do it two years in advance and reserve a space, and you will get early acceptance. I long for this. It should be. That's the spirit of the Lord's recovery. You mean business? To be the overcomers? You mean business with the songs you sang? Or is it just a song? You must go. You need to go. The Lord is calling you to go. I'm speaking jealously. 
on behalf of the Lord tonight, right now. And then you need to consecrate the rest of your life, however long that will be, to live for nothing else but the Lord. You don't think about so many things, worry about so many things. You just offer yourself as I did. I didn't know what was going to happen. No idea what will happen. And there was no need for me to know. There's only one need for me to give. To offer. That's all that the Lord wants. He will be responsible. And I guarantee you, he is responsible. So tonight, this is what we will do. First of all, we will open up now as I finish here for about 45 minutes or 15 minutes. I want some of you, as the Spirit anoints you, as the Lord leads you within, to come up with some microphone somewhere, not to consecrate in a speaking or testifying way, but to offer a prayer of consecration. Number one, on your own behalf. And number two, if I may say so, on behalf of your generation. Consecrate tonight by prayer. By prayer. And we don't want just some of you to come up to just jump on the bandwagon and do your thing. No. Tonight is a solemn night before the Lord. But I do believe Many of you are stirred up by the Lord to do this. And this is the time. 